In meditation, we try to become one-pointed on the meditation subject to first gain some calm so that the mind does not have any activity other than concentration. In contemplation, we take a subject, and as we take this subject, we try to stay on that one subject without discursive thinking. And as we have that subject in mind, we check out its universality and how it applies to us individually. And if it does, and whether it has meaning for us. So it always needs to be the um, subject for a contemplation always has to be something that has universal aspects, not a personal problem. A personal problem is nothing but going around and around and around with one's own viewpoints. Contemplation concerns that which is true for all people for all existence and then seeing how it applies to oneself. It is a very valuable uh, addition to one's meditation practice and very, very helpful in order to make some insight arise within oneself. Now we're going to do it now. I will say the uh, subject, and I'd like you to repeat it after me in order to remember it better. And then I will say something about the contemplation aspect of it, how to contemplate it. You can do it in your own way. I'm only going to give suggestions how to use it as a contemplation subject. So first we'll, I'll say it and then you'll repeat it. In order to get started, please put the attention on the breath. Now please repeat after me. I am of the nature to decay. I have not got beyond decay. Now the first thing to do is to check out whether this is a true statement and whether it is true for oneself and whether one can notice this a process taking place, a process of decay. And then, whether one would like to reverse it, whether one would like to stop it, whether one is totally accepting it, understanding it, flowing with it, and taking a cue from it of one's own impermanence and changeability and non-solidity.
I'm of the nature to be diseased. I have not got beyond disease. Again, we must check out whether this is true, whether we have had sicknesses in the past, whether we've had headaches, toothaches, colds, coughs, and worse diseases than that, aches and pains. And if it's a true statement, what does it tell us about the ownership of this body? I'm of the nature to die. I have not got beyond death. Now here we don't have to inquire. We know it's true. But we need to introspect whether we are keeping it in mind that this may happen any time and are living accordingly, and also whether we are ready, and if not, what is holding us back, and what are we doing about getting ready so that it is no threat All that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish.
Now here we need to inquire whether this is true of the past, that the people, the situations, the experiences, the feelings, which were dear and delightful to us, have either changed or completely vanished. And if they are no longer there, then what about that, what we're holding dear and delightful now? Are we aware of it that it will change and vanish? Or are we hoping against hope? I am the owner of my karma. If we contemplate on that, it means that we are become willing to take full responsibility for everything that happens to us. That we never think it is created outside of us that we realize we are always confronting our own karma resultants. I am heir to my karma. Here we become aware of the fact that if we want a valuable inheritance, we have to manufacture it ourselves.
I am related to my karma. Here we can contemplate that this is the closest relationship we'll ever have, as near to us as our own skin, and the one we have to come to terms with because it doesn't leave us. Whatever karma I shall do, whether good or evil, that I shall inherit. That brings us to this present moment, because in all our waking moments we're making karma, and we can infer from it that we very often inherit the resultants immediately. So it is a very impactful aspect of our lives. The teaching of the Buddha can be called a teaching of cause and effect. Cause and effect plays a great part in his explanations of the Dhamma. The word Dhamma means the Buddha's teaching, but literally translated, it means law or law of nature. So when he describes Dhamma, he describes law of nature and also very much so cause and effect. The Buddha did not teach Buddhism. That's a later invention. Whatever he described it, he described it as Dhamma. And he said, who sees dependent arising sees Dhamma. Who sees Dhamma sees dependent arising. Now seeing naturally means in seeing, within oneself. And dependent arising means cause and effect. And he gave two 
different teachings on cause and effect. Both of them have great application to our lives. And if we not only understand them or try to understand them, but use them, we will find that it makes a lot of difference to the way our lives flow harmoniously or otherwise. We also have to remember again and again that meditation taken out of context cannot succeed. It may bring a little bit of peacefulness eventually but it will not bring the real impact that a spiritual path brings to one. So we must not take meditation out of context of the teaching. Meditation is a means and not an end in itself. It is a means to sharpen the mind It's a means to calm the mind. It's a means to strengthen the mind. It is the only thing we can do to get the mind in shape. But then we're going to have to use that shape. And not only do we have to use it, we have to use it for its intended purpose. Intended purpose is the growth process in our mind and emotions so that it becomes eventually a totally matured mind which has no obstructions in it. The first and what is called worldly aspect of dependent arising was given by the Buddha in the shape of a picture, a teaching aid. He drew it in the sand for his monks. And having drawn it in the sand and explained it, the monks were so delighted with it that they asked whether they were allowed to copy it. And uh, they did. And the Buddha asked that a copy of this picture was hung on the inside of every monastery and one person in that monastery to be designated to be an expert in explaining this so that any visitor could come and look at this picture and be explained, have an explanation of its meaning. I think many of you will have seen the picture and quite a few probably have thought it to be interesting but that's it. Maybe not the real understanding of what it means. The monasteries and all the uh, artifacts of the Buddha's time were destroyed in India 
by the Muslim invasion. This particular aspect, this picture, was taken um, uh, to Tibet. And today what we can see is a Tibetan version of that particular teaching. And the picture is quite elaborate and uh, looks very, um, uh, very detailed. Tibetans are usually very artistic, and so it is extremely well done. In the Buddha's time, it was much more simple. So this particular picture, which you may have seen, is a wheel or a circle, a large circle. And on the top of it, you can find a stylized sort of tiger that's hanging on to that wheel. This tiger doesn't look quite like a tiger, but he still has tiger characteristics. He's got a huge tail hanging below the, below the wheel, and on his head, he um, has a... Uh, like a decoration. And this decoration are five skulls. And these five skulls are depicting the five things that we are made of. That the five khandas, five aggregates, which are the main ingredients of a human being. Now I will explain those at another time. This tiger is trying to look beautiful by having curls on his head and uh, rings on his claws and uh, uh, even bracelets on his toes, but he still looks like a tiger. And he is, has his mouth wide open and he's trying to swallow this wheel and he depicts impermanence. No matter how nicely we dress it up or dress ourselves up, impermanence swallow us, swallows us anyway. So this tiger is on the outside of this big circle. Then in the inside there's a centerpiece, a small circle. And there's three animals in there, a snake, a cock, and a pig. And they bite each other's tail, so they are make also a, a circle again. And they are symbolic for the snake for hate, because she has poison inside. The uh, cock for greed, because he has a whole barnyard full of hens. And the pig for delusion, because it likes to throw dirt over its head and can't see anything then. Now, these three are the unwholesome roots, which are birthright. Delusion being the underlying factor, greed and hate, the two resultants. If we, for one moment, accept the fact that we ourselves have, sometimes, maybe, a lack of wisdom, and oftentimes wanting something or rejecting something, which is greed and hate, and that this is the birthright 
of every human being, we can become a little more tolerant and accepting of what goes on within and what goes on in other people. No matter who they are, whether they have jurisdiction over a whole country, can even declare war, or whether they're only the people that we live with. Everybody has greed, hate, and delusion, including ourselves. It's only the enlightened one that doesn't have it. And if we do a bit of introspection, we will find them very easily. They're usually right on the surface, particularly greed and hate. Delusion is harder to see because it takes wisdom to see delusion. So greed and hate are easy to see. And greed and hate do not need uh, to be uh, thought of as violence or passion. They're everything we like and we dislike, whenever we want or whenever we want to get rid of. Both are greed and hate. And we can see that in ourselves and accept it for a fact that this is the human dilemma. And only when we do that will we use our recognizing power and our emotional acceptance and tolerance in the right way. It's within us, it's within everybody. Nobody is otherwise. Well, there are grades of distinction, but they are very fine differences only. The real difference only comes when there has been liberation, freedom. So these are the inner circle, those three. And then comes another bigger circle, and that's usually divided into six parts. And these six parts depict the uh, six aspects of uh, existence. One is the human realm. And it's entirely up to the artist, of course, what he puts there. Mothers with babies, people in the rice fields, uh, machinery, uh, vehicles. Sometimes there's also a war going on in that picture. Whatever the artist likes to show what people are doing. Then there's the animal realm. And there's different animals to be seen. Then there is the hell realm. The hell realm, which is a state of consciousness. And whatever the artist's imagination allows, that's what he puts in the hell realm. Fire and brimstone or whatever it may be. Something that looks pretty horrid. Then we have, a, then there's another realm of existence, which is the, uh, called the hungry ghosts. These are depicted as having very tiny throats and mouths and huge bellies. They can never get full. Their greed has been so strong that now their greed is never to be um, placated. So this is another state of consciousness. Then there are the Asuras. They're always fighting. It's a constant state of war going on. And then there is another a realm which is the deva realm where we may 
possibly compare that to heaven, paradise, utopia, whatever we like. And it is depicted as something rather beautiful. Now these are different states of consciousness. And we can, all of us in this lifetime, experience all of them. The outer rim of this wheel is the most important one. It's divided into 12 parts. And the first picture that we see there is an old woman, blind, with a stick, trying to find her way through a forest. And this is the symbol for ignorance. Now, ignorance does not mean in the Buddhist terminology that one hasn't gone to school. It means ignoring the law of nature. And since we are very much in the business of ignoring the law of nature, we not only find that within, but certainly also in our environment. Because we're ignoring the laws of nature, we have dying forests, polluted rivers, and uh, polluted air, and all sorts of um, uh, natural catastrophes that we ourselves have brought about. That law of nature is outside of us. That law of nature is exactly the same as within us. That law of nature within is particularly the law of change and the law of non-substantiality, corelessness. But since we are ignoring that, we do not live according to it. We are trying to buck against it. This is where all our problems stem from. So this is like a beginning. When people ask the Buddha about the beginning of the universe, he never answered that. That was one of the four imponderables which he wouldn't answer. But he pointed to ignorance as the cause of our problems. And he said that was enough to know that, to get out of all problems. Because total liberation, nibbana, one knows anyway all the answers to the questions. The main thing is to do what is necessary to reach that state. So this first picture is followed by a second one, which is the effect of that first cause. That whole um, circle is always cause and effect. So the next thing that is the effect is shown as a picture of a potter it's making pots. And he has some pretty pots, good ones, and he has some broken ones. This is our karma making. Now, because we are beset with this delusion of me, I, ego, we make karma, good and bad, both. And this is our volitional thinking. It is made in the mind. And this is why it is so utterly important to meditate, to train the mind, to know something about the teaching, so that the karma which we make with the mind is at least that much good karma so that our opportunities are open to us and we don't close our line of communication 
we can close that quite easily by making bad karma. If we make enough bad karma, we can wind up in prison. If we make enough good karma, we can, within ourselves, wind up in a deva realm where our inner being is quite at ease and is loving and compassionate. So it is a matter of realizing that the karma which we are making is done in the mind. It then is followed through through speech and action. We have three doors, thought, speech and action. And it all starts, of course, in the mind. So that's our first and foremost place of attention, what we're doing with our mind. So meditation is the means for getting the mind in order. Getting the mind sharp and clear and insightful enough so that we can change from the negative to the positive. We don't have to carry on with thinking negative thoughts. It's totally unnecessary. We can change them. Now, having made karma, what arises is the rebirth consciousness. It's usually depicted by a monkey hopping from tree to tree one life after another. But we do not have to think of rebirth in a next life. We are, in, in actual fact, reborn every moment. And we're bringing with us the karma that we have made and particularly the resultant of the past moment. If we were angry... A moment ago, we're not going to feel good right now. If we were loving a moment ago, we'd be feeling fine right now. So we bring from moment to moment this with us. And particularly easy can be seen, easily it can be seen, every morning. Every morning is a rebirth. We are, the day is young, we are full of energy, and we have a whole day ahead of us where we get older every moment and get quite tired in the evening and fall asleep and die a small death because neither can we do much other than toss and turn, nor do we know much. It's all dreamy and very foggy. So it is every day like a whole lifespan. And since we only have one day at a time, all the past days are all gone and the future days may or may not come, this is the rebirth which is most important to look at. The rebirth consciousness is the one we bring with us containing the karma that we have made. And we don't need to think of lifetimes back, although there's something there too. But if we really want to practice and want to grow, we're practicing now. So what went on lifetimes ago when we think we might have been a Persian dancer 
or Egyptian princess or a Polish warrior or whatever we think we've been. It's totally immaterial, isn't it? It's all fantasy. What is important is now. And this one day can be lived. We have a fair chance of living that whole day. Even that is not sure, but there's a good chance. And then, when we look at it and say that we have this whole day, and we bring our karma with us, it might induce us to think about making good karma during that day. Using that one day to the best of our ability, not frittering the time away, not using it in useless uh, pursuits, but using it in those uh, pursuits which will give us spiritual growth. The rebirth consciousness is shown as a monkey hopping from tree to tree because of the fact that an untrained, unenlightened mind doesn't know exactly what to do with itself. And we can compare that to our mind during the day. There are certain things that we are, that we're probably forced to do because we have to earn a living or we have to uh, look after a family or we have to do something. But other than that, the direction is missing. And this is shown like this jumping from tree to tree. So rebirth is most important to be looked at every morning. And if we do that with a feeling of gratitude in the heart, that here is another day where we are healthy and uh, have all the necessary equipment for our life. We do not have to go hungry or be without shelter. We can be grateful that we have the opportunity to practice another whole day. Our good karma making will have a much better chance. Now with that rebirth consciousness, arises mind and body. Now, if we carry the analogy further, when we wake up, we know again that we have mind and body. While we're fast asleep, there's nothing really that tells us who we are. Now, we have mind and body, and our first step into insight will necessitate the understanding that mind and body are two. It's not this idea that this is me, one lump, and uh, it's all happening because one needs it, one wants it, one feels it. That takes personal choice away. <clears throat> that takes the possibility of making good karma away, <clears throat> and it makes a joke out of spiritual life. Then spiritual life has no reality to it. <clears throat> the spiritual life can only have reality if we know that with our mind we can fashion that what we want in life. And that the body is our servant. Some bodies are better servants than others. And it doesn't hurt to make this servant into a better servant by 
<clears throat> any means that we can find, food, exercise, and so on. But it remains the servant. The master is the mind. If you think for a moment to put a body here in front of us without a mind, and then hack it to bits, it won't object. There's nothing there that can object. You can hack it to pieces, and that's all there is to it. But put a mind into the body, and you've got a different situation. The picture which is shown on this um, circle is a boat in which there is a prone passenger and also a one that's paddling. The prone passenger is the body, the one that's paddling is the mind. We can do it, we cannot do anything without the mind telling us to do it. If our minds hadn't told us to come here, this body wouldn't be sitting here. The mind is very much affected by the aches and pains of the body, but that's only because it's untrained. A trained mind, such as the Buddha's mind, is no longer affected by the unpleasantnesses of the body. In fact, the unpleasantness of the body is unavoidable. There is nobody that doesn't have some sort of sicknesses once in a while, aches and pains, unless dying young will grow old and the older body doesn't function as well as the younger body. The Buddha described it like this. He said, the untrained, unenlightened disciple has two darts, two arrows that poke him. The trained, enlightened disciple has one. The two that are darts that focus are mind and body. Both give us unpleasant uh, experiences. But the enlightened disciple only has the body to contend with. The mind no longer reacts to it. The Buddha also was sick during his lifetime, and he was quite ill when he which led to his death, and yet he was able on his deathbed to go into the meditative absorptions because the mind was not affected by the body. In our case, of course, the mind's affected by the body, so it reacts to it. But we must be able, eventually, when we have gained practice in meditation and insight, be able to separate the two, to understand what is mind and what is body, and to realize it is the mind that needs the most attention. Although we do just the other way around. Most of the attention, most of the time, most of the energy that we have, that we spend, is spent on the body. We look after its food, so that it gets the right kind of food, wash it and clean it, give it some exercise of some sort, give it a nice rest in bed at night, have a good shelter for it in a house, have nice clothing for it, and 
if it should get sick, we find some sort of medicine. Needs that attention at least as much or more than the body. It needs a rest. The only way it can ever get a rest, if it stops thinking and becomes calm and peaceful. Because at night when the body gets a rest, the mind dreams. And during the day, it thinks. It's, um, we're overworking the finest, most delicate, most valuable tool that exists in the universe. And then we are surprised why things don't work out the way we thought they should, why the world we live in is not the kind of paradise that it ought to be. Because the minds that fashion the world we live in, including our own, cannot work at full capacity because they're totally overworked. They have not had a rest. They have not had a clean-up. They have not had the necessary medicine. So it is a mind that is running down instead of regenerating. Meditation is our way of regenerating. As I said, one moment of concentration is one moment of purification. Purification of mind is the clean-up. Calm and peacefulness is the rest the mind needs. And the medicine that the mind needs is the understanding, the knowing, and the remembering of the Dhamma. That is the medicine to show the mind where it can be completely, can become completely well. It never needs to have any deficiency again. Naturally, that's a, a progressive pathway. But at least we know what can be done. So when we realize that the mind is the one that's paddling the boat and the body is sitting in it, then we have a much better understanding of where our priorities lie. And looking after the mind does not mean stuffing more knowledge into it. That's already been done with a vengeance. There's far too much in it already. So it means what I already explained about it. The next picture we see is a house with five windows and a door. Now the five windows are our five senses, which obviously are an effect of the cause of having a body. And the door is the thinking capacity. So these six are what the Buddha described as our six senses, and they are caused by having mind and body. Now this is a very important point to understand and remember that this house, that this person, has six openings to the world. And as long as we use only those, we will always see the world the way we've seen it. It doesn't change a thing. We have the seeing and the hearing, the tasting, touching, smelling, and the thinking. And as long as we do not know anything else, we're looking in vain 
for fulfillment. Because that what is outside to be seen, heard, tasted, touched, smelt, or thought about can never promise to be always satisfying. It is sometimes satisfying, but very often it's not. So in, as long as we do not know that we have to go beyond that sensual aspect of ourselves, we will look in vain for satisfaction. And not only because all our sense contacts are bound to be, let's say, 50-50, half, half pleasant, half unpleasant, but also because they have to be short-lived. They can under no circumstances last. It's not only that they don't last, but they must not last. Because imagine listening to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony for three days in a row. Nothing else. Just that. Sitting there and listening to that from morning to night, and from morning to night, and from morning to night. After the third day, one never wants to hear it again. In fact, after the first day. We cannot stand that. The same goes for eating. We have a very nice meal, and our host, we tell our host it's very nice, we like it very much, and uh, the host says, oh, that's good, I'm glad you like it. I've got plenty of food here. Please stay another hour or two and eat a little more. Well, if we want to eat another hour or two, would be in utter misery. A meal must last 20 to 25 minutes at the most. And the same goes with all our sense contacts. They have to be short-lived. Neither can we listen, nor can we eat, nor can we touch for any length of time. And because that is so, this is why it happens that way. If it were not to happen that way, it would be an utter a disaster for us. So even if we find the pleasant contacts, which is not so hard to find, in the, in particularly in the outer conditions in an affluent society, they cannot last. They are constantly disappearing. And as they are constantly disappearing, we've got to find new ones. And this is how our, our economy runs. We can't sell anything that doesn't give pleasant feelings to people. So everything that's being sold is for the purpose of making it pleasant. And since that pleasure lasts very shortly, has a very short lifespan, we spend time, energy, thought, and attention on getting it again. And not only, of course, through purchasing, but also through that which we need to, we, we can get without purchasing. But fulfillment cannot arise. It is momentary pleasure. And we know that whether we have already admitted it or not makes no difference. Underlying it, we all know it. And that is usually the reason for wanting to try meditation. Maybe there's something in that that will last a little longer. Well, there is. 
but it needs a fair bit of determination and it needs absolute steadiness and practice. And that's usually the fly in the ointment. The steadiness and practice is usually lacking. Having those six senses, the next picture shows the sense contact. And there's shown usually, now these pictures vary, but uh, this is a common way of depicting it. A man who is having um, arrows shot into his eyes, a very unpleasant touch contact. But what it really means, the symbolism of it is, that when we have senses, we must make contact. If we have eyes that function, we see. If we have ears that function, we hear. If we have taste buds, we taste. If we have a body, we have touch contact. And if we have a mind, we have ideas and thinking stuff. So all these things happen automatically. There is nothing to stop all that. And there's nothing to say that it shouldn't be that way. But what there is to say is that we should get a little more insight into what makes us tick. So when we get that little more insight in what makes us tick, we can maybe make that ticking a little more fortunate for ourselves. This is, there's nothing to be done, nothing that we can change, and it's not necessary to change anything. As long as there are senses, we make contact. Now, this is very apparent in the sitting position, in the meditation, for those who haven't been used to it for a long time. We make touch contact, and what do we get? We get an unpleasant feeling. It cannot be any other way. That happens like that automatically. But the next step doesn't have to be automatic. The dislike of it. Now here we have this uh, picture of the arrows being shot into the eyes of this person. And uh, this is a sense contact. And the next picture is a, um, a picture of um, very often a man and a woman embracing. And the symbolism for that is that from the contact comes feeling. It's very difficult to make a picture for feeling. So that's supposed to be the picture for feeling. All that is automatic. There's no way to change it. The enlightened one has sense contact and has feeling from that. But the next step is the doorway out. The next step goes from feeling to craving. And the picture which is shown is usually a person sitting at a um, laden banquet table and shoveling food into himself. This is to depict the craving. Now, the craving does not only mean wanting to get. Craving also means wanting to get rid of. Now, in this case, when we have the unpleasant feeling in the leg or the knee, we want to get rid of it. That's craving. And that doorway out, out of that 
ever-reoccurring cycle from birth to death, from death to birth, from birth to death, and so on, which always brings with it that same cycle of trying to get the pleasant sense contacts, trying to have the pleasant feeling, rejecting the unpleasant, which we all know and have been doing for years on end, that can only be broken at that spot. That is the the one spot in that whole cycle. Namely, when the feeling is understood to be nothing but feeling. It's not one's own. If it were one's own, why are we getting unpleasant feelings? It would be utterly foolish to um, ask for unpleasant feelings, to have an unpleasant feeling come if it's one's own we would naturally only have pleasant feelings if we had any say in the matter. If they really belonged to us, we would naturally throw the unpleasant ones away and keep only the pleasant ones. But nobody is capable of doing that. Everybody has had unpleasant feelings. Now, feelings in this case are both the physical sensation and the emotion. And everybody's had both, the pleasant and the unpleasant. And the only way we can ever get to that doorway that leads out, out of this pre-programmed round of our existence, is when the inside arises to the point where the inner being no longer rejects and resists, but has understood and has been able to experience that things are as they are. And they are just a constant flow, nothing else. And there's nothing to be done except to be aware of them, to watch it, to know it, but not to put oneself in the middle of it and try to get that which is pleasant and get rid of that which is unpleasant. In other words, equanimity. Equanimity is one of the seven factors of enlightenment, and it takes a fair bit of doing, but we all have the capacity to um, practice some of that, especially when we know, when we realize that unpleasant feeling just is. It's got nothing to do with anything. The reason we think that we have some jurisdiction over it is because of its arising and ceasing. It comes and it goes. So what we do is we try to hasten its departure, even if it is with aspirin. We hasten the departure of the unpleasant feeling, and sometimes with even stronger stuff than aspirin. And here we hasten the departure of the unpleasant feeling by moving our sitting position. So we think, we think because of that, that we actually have something to do with it. But all we're trying to do is cover up the law of nature. We're putting a sort of a cover over it so that we don't have to look at it so closely. Because when one day, when we look at the law of nature as it really is, we will see that what we have thought until now has all been complete fantasy. And when we become imbued with that, we will 
at least smile about ourselves, if not laugh. So we cover over that which is real, because we don't like it. But since there's so much that we don't like, and want to cover over all the time, that's where our energy goes, and fulfillment cannot come from that. Because that what is real will come through anyway, again and again. So we're always in the business of trying to get rid of it again. Here is the doorway out, and it can be practiced, but not practiced with dislike of the unpleasant feeling. The dislike of the unpleasant feeling and, and sitting with it, that doesn't do any good at all. That's uh, only reinforcing our craving to let go, to get rid of it. What we need to do is to let go of the reaction. And if we can let go of the reaction to it, at least temporarily, we have made a big step towards freedom. Because until we have done that, we are constant victims of our feelings. We're never in charge. We're always a victim. And being the victim is not a pleasant feeling at all. It gives us that... Um, delusion that because we can run away from things that we are in charge but it always runs after us so when we are still the victim of our pleasant and unpleasant feelings wanting the one and rejecting the other we are not master of our own lives but when we become master even for a moment to let go of the unpleasant feeling and pay no attention to it and realize it's just a feeling. To become master of the situation for one moment only. First of all, we gain the confidence that we can be master of it, that we can do it again. And the inner power arises. It's not power over others, it's power over oneself. And that inner power then helps one to see clearly. After having passed that doorway by reacting to the feeling we are again in an automatic progression up to that doorway we are in an automatic progression after the door we were in an automatic progression the next step is clinging and it's usually depicted with a person in a fruit tree picking fruit and throwing it down into baskets which are already full to overflowing. It's actually not a bad uh, uh, symbolism for the kind of agricultural mess we have these days in the affluent countries, where the butter is being stored and not ever sent to anywhere, and then in the end thrown away, and coffee dumped in the ocean, and all that type of thing. But it wasn't meant that way. What was meant that one clings to that grasping so strongly that one doesn't even pay attention to the fact that there is already enough. And the moment we crave, the moment we want, we also cling. If I want to keep something, if I want to have something, immediately my emotional state is attached to that whatever it may be. And underlying it, I know already that whatever it may be, person or thing, 
it's impermanent, it's due to change, it is uh, subject to deterioration, to being stolen, to being lost, to vanishing, to changing. We know all that. We don't want to pay attention to it, but we do know. And because we do know, with the clinging, always comes a certain feeling of fear, the fear of loss. That is uh, true with clinging to people or clinging to one's belongings. We can see it quite clearly with belongings when people are very rich. They have uh, burglar alarms, double locks, um, ferocious dogs, huge fences around the property, and large insurance policies. They're afraid the stuff is going to get lost. They're afraid the stuff is going to go up in smoke from a fire. All sorts of fears. And with people, the fear can very often show itself when it's very strong in jealousy and uh, a very unpleasant feeling. So the minute we have passed this um, possibility of stepping out by reacting again to our sensation or emotion we are already stuck again with clinging to whatever it is that we either wanted or didn't want and no matter how small it is or how big it is it brings a certain anxiety into one's life the Buddha said the way to Nibbana is the way of letting go of craving. It is our only spiritual growth process, the letting go. There's nothing to gain, there's nothing to get. In meditation, we've got to let go. If we don't let go of our ideas and our thinking, our worries and our problems, we can't meditate. Letting go is the key word for the spiritual path knowing that it's all impermanent, that it cannot last, that it's all going towards dissolution, that nothing remains static, that in itself can help one to let go. Wanting brings always anxiety because one doesn't know whether one's going to get it and when one has got it, whether one can keep it. Now from that clinging comes also the idea of becoming. Now we can use that whole circle as this in this lifetime. We don't have to think of future and past lifetimes. Often it is explained as being three lifetimes. The first one, the ignorance and the karma form, uh, formations, then bringing about the rebirth consciousness and this lifetime now up to becoming. But we can see it all in this lifetime, which I think is far more uh, useful because we are concerned with this life. The past ones are all gone and there's hardly anything we can do about them. In fact, there isn't anything. They, are, they have disappeared down the uh, ages. And the future ones, well, maybe, huh? So we'll do it now. The becoming, which comes from the clinging, is the idea of having something more satisfying than we have now. We want to become. 
a very good meditator. We want to become uh, uh, spiritual. We want to become uh, more learned. We want to all sorts of ideas. What we want to become, because we're not satisfied with what we are. We do not even pay attention to what we are. But we know we're not satisfied. But instead of trying to figure out what we are and to see whether the fault or the um, difficulty actually lies in the fact that that we are not what we want to become, we just think of becoming something else. And when we have become something else, namely... Maybe we have lived in the city and moved to the country, and now we've become uh, a person with a little farm. So we're a farmer. We're just as dissatisfied. So we move back to the city and uh, get a job in an office. And we're again, dissatisfied. The becoming is never going to satisfy us. It is the investigation of who we really are. When we get down to rock bottom, we will see that it doesn't matter what we become, we'll always be the same. That what we are will never change, because that what we are is something entirely different from what we think we are. And getting down there to that rock-bottom explanation, that will take care of not wanting to become. But the becoming is fraught with difficulty because it's a reaching out towards something else, which we may uh, accomplish or may not. It is uh, concerned with getting away from what we are now and getting towards something that we want to be. So there's no peace in that. It is restlessness. And we do have a lot of that in our uh, human dilemma. It is usually shown as another, as a a pregnant woman with a baby uh, growing in her uh, because that is the ultimate becoming. And what it means is that because we haven't seen the futility, the emptiness of what we have been doing and what life is all about, we want to become, we want to be here. We do not want to give up. We want to be somebody. And that then shows itself in getting born. We can use again the analogy of getting born the next morning. So then from that We see the next picture is a baby in a pram, usually, being pushed around or carried on the back, and uh, the birth. And then the next picture is, very often, an old man who carries a sack of bones on his back. Death. And uh, very often it's written under the picture, and this is how this whole mass of dukkha arises. Anybody not know what dukkha means? Unsatisfactoriness. This is the um, uh, usually written at the bottom. This is how this whole mass of dukkha arises. From the ignorance, through our craving, <coughs> clinging and becoming. And this can give us a good indication also why things happen in our lives the way they do. It's our own wanting or our own rejecting. And the stronger that wanting is and the stronger that rejection, the stronger (coughs) our experiences. 
I'm going to have to give my voice a rest. You can ask some questions. So there has to be a certain amount of motivation factor which leads me to make my choices. And it's not wanting on at least some level. What is it? Any questions? Hmm. As long as we have the ego delusion, it's always wanting. There's no, no uh, possibility of not having that. So, at this time, when there is the ego delusion, the only uh, possibility is to make the wise choice, as you say, and rather than the unwise one. But all choices are wanting, certainly. It is only the ara and the fully enlightened one that has cut, got away from that and doesn't make any more karma. But for us, it is absolutely essential that we can see where the wise and where the unwise lies, so that we can make the good karma. And it certainly concerns our own wanting. But our that is a direction in life. But where the way the step out of this whole thing is, is our reaction. Not the particular action we take, but the reaction. Our pre-programmed reactions. That's the important aspect. Okay, what else? <clears throat> One of my teachers always said, if you want to be reborn intelligent, you have to ask a lot of questions. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, you talked a little bit about the equations and one about acknowledging the different style. And then you said something about therefore we have there are points in our movement. How do you feel about this? This contemplation which we did this morning is called the five daily recollections. And the Buddha recommended that every person recollects this every single day. And that is a way to go about it. Namely, to remember every, every day that we are not here forever. We are here on a guest performance. And uh, any time it can be finished. We don't know when. We have no idea. We always have these ideas, well, maybe 75 or 87 or whatever, how many years we have figured out to want to live. But who's, who knows? So if we remember this every single day, our life will be imbued with the understanding that every single day counts and not the future. Now is the time to do it. And now is it, it's important to do what we think is important, to grow to have our spiritual path. This is important now and not in the future. So if we remember that, we will also have a different relationship to the people around us because they can also die any moment. And we certainly wouldn't like them to die when we don't feel loving towards them. So when we remember that, it all becomes immediate and our meditation becomes better because there is a certain urgency behind it. It needs to be done now. You can only watch this breath, not an expo. So it helps very much to recollect every day. Does that answer your question? Okay. There was a... Yes. Yeah. 
I'll tell you a story. <coughs> when the Buddha was still the Bodhisattva and not enlightened, he was sitting under the Bodhi tree and a woman came. Her name was Sujata. And uh, for reasons which I won't explain right now, she wanted to offer him food. And uh, so she did. She offered him milk rice. And it was in a golden bowl. And she said he should also keep the golden bowl. So he ate the milk rice and he took the golden bowl and he said he would throw it into the river behind him, the river Naranya. And if the golden bowl would flow upstream, he would become enlightened. If it would go downstream, he wouldn't. Well, obviously it must have gone upstream. However, it's a symbolic story. And what it means is that if we follow the crowd, that we go with the current downstream, it appears to be much easier. And nobody is going to say you're going in the wrong direction. And we're not going to bump into anything because everybody's going in that direction. But where we end up is in the mudflats. If we go the other direction, upstream, it's naturally much more difficult because we have to paddle much harder to get upstream. There are going to be lots of logs on the way which are going to say you're going the wrong way. It's this way, not that. But we're going to the source. So not to go with the, with this current is more difficult, but it gets us to the source where it all has started from. This current is two things. The current that goes downstream. It is in the first instance, of course, what everybody else is doing. That what you were asking about. Yeah. But the other thing, it is also our instincts. And they also lead us downstream. Our instincts for that which we like and get rid of. So we have to have a personal... Um, a personal un, uh, choice, what is most important in our lives, and then direct ourselves that way. It is a slow change. When the inner person changes, the outer life changes with it. It can't do anything else. It may be imperceptible at first, but in the end there will be a big difference. So you might remember that golden bowl that goes upstream to the source. <laughs> hmm? The um, the letting go is a, a, a mind state which, when it has been actually accomplished, you also let go of all the resistance in the body and it's hardly likely that there's going to be an injury. But when the letting go is only momentary, naturally, then uh, what arises again is the dislike. And one should not sit with dislike. It doesn't help. So um, one changes the position. One has to assess one's own capacity. And in the spiritual path, 
just try a little bit more than one has been able to do before. That's all. One cannot jump over one's own shadow. It's impossible. So one's own capacity goes that far. But it is very, very helpful to at least try out what it's like to be able to let go of an unpleasant feeling because the attention is riveted somewhere else. Because the unpleasant feeling doesn't exist at that time. It's a very, very insightful um, occasion because one learns from that that we only know where our consciousness is directed. So one has to balance that oneself huh? when it becomes too much. It's impossible to say, because a person, uh, may, one person may have already done in past lives a lot. It's impossible to say. But if one wants to lead a spiritual life, it does not hang on meditation, where you have to sit on a pillow quietly away from everything else. A spiritual life is lived in the world. It isn't what one does, it's how one does it. You can be totally unspiritual in a nunnery, I can assure you. <laughs> and meditate every morning and every evening. So it is a matter of how you approach what one is doing, whether one can actually see the confrontation as a learning object and not get um, uh, angry or worried or anxious or fearful or envious about it. But use the situation as one's own learning uh, experience every day, every moment in the life. Because the more you are in the world, the more confrontations one has. And these confrontations are often um, cause for negative reaction. To learn that, to change one's negative reaction to loving kindness and compassion, that is a great purifier in daily life. And it doesn't matter where you are. You can do that anywhere. In the middle of the biggest crowd, much better than sitting all alone in a cave. So I don't know whether it takes longer here or there. The individual. Individual. Okay, whatever. Oh, go ahead. How to decide that? <laughs> well, uh, usually it decides itself. If it doesn't decide itself, it's usually wrong. <laughs> it isn't sort of like a, a, a big jump-like thing. I think you can compare this very well to the decision to get married or not. Well, how do people decide? I don't know. How do they? Same thing. 
uh, just a progressive uh, progressive step that one takes when that becomes the right thing or appears to be the right thing in one's life. Anything else? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely not. Uh, A totality experience can be a meditative experience, but it's certainly not enlightenment. To become one with something else, one still has to be there. That's not the final act. Um, Nibbana is also law of nature. Um, I don't know whether it's useful to discuss something which is uh, still in the sort of in a nebulous uh, uh, future at this moment, but you can say one thing about it, that both the enlightened state and the unenlightened state are in our own mind. There's nothing else that can become enlightened except the mind. And um, because both are there, they're both law of nature, of course. And the unenlightened state is a state of the consciousness carrying with it those aspects which cover up that which lets go completely. And when that has been done, then the enlightened state is in the same mind. It's exactly in the same place, except we don't see it. 